you know, most of my criminality and stuff was connected to, to my drug use. Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Monica. And you're listening to Cage Nation. Welcome back, listeners. Hello. This is Hannah. And this is Monica. And we have a guest today, Tony. Tony is an executive director at a nonprofit here in Portland. Welcome, Tony. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So starting out with a question that we're asking everyone, when does a person's sentence end? Um, well, I think that depends probably on who the person is, mm-hmm. you know. Um, when did my sentence end? Uh, I don't know. You know, I still am worried when I see the police and um, there's still kind of like a, you know, a lingering fear that something could happen, but... You know, over the years, I've just kind of realized that uh, different people experience the criminal justice and system in different ways. You know, when does my family's sentence end? Because, uh, you know, my dad was in and out of prison. He's in prison right now. My grandfather was. Um, I never went to prison, but I was in and out of the criminal justice system for a long time. So, you know, if I didn't get sober and start changing my life, would my kids end up? you know in the department of criminal justice so you know for some people it it could end after one time going i see some people who go in um they just make a really bad choice maybe you know one choice they go to prison they get out and they never go back and then there's people who are just trapped in it and then there's families and you know certain types of the population who get trapped in it for a long time Mm -hmm. you said over the years um how many years have you been distanced from the sin or yeah from a sentence or from the system well i i got seven years sober um in july and i actually got sober in oregon uh in 2012 and then um i had felonies in three states uh, felony warrants in three states and i just like buttoned down the last uh, state that i had a warrant in um this year oh wow so i was you know, operating as like student body president of my college. I was running this nonprofit and, you know, racking up money and fundraising all this stuff. And I had a felony warrant mm-hmm. at yeah. the time. So, yeah. but you know, that, I mean, that, that brings in the like question about like white people stuff, <laughs> you know, like would I have been able to do that if I wasn't white? Probably not. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So <laughs> probably not. I was like, as a black dude running around with a felony, I'm Pro- sure somebody would have taken care of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah like this would unlikely be the outcome for that so just recently just recently i went down to idaho and got it taken care of well congratulations you know and then and and this this experience was different than before um because before you know i was poor and i didn't have money for like a lawyer but then after i got into recovery um you know i've done a lot of stuff for the community i'm heavily involved in the community i've helped a lot of people and so um anyways i had some recovering attorneys help me out provide the services just for free oh wow and so it's a much different experience having a you know a few attorneys Mm -hmm. (laughs) help you out yeah Yeah, it was real different Mm -hmm. it'll smooth it over real quick yeah Mm -hmm. well then all the stuff i've done i've done a lot of good stuff for the community but it was just a different experience yeah so even seven years later there were still things that you needed to address look at figure out even though you'd been accomplished in a lot of other areas of your life yeah so i mean that's the end of the compliance i guess you know what i mean interaction with the system 
but you know what are the long lasting impacts of having you know a felony and you know engaging and certain skill building and professional and, and you know what I mean interpersonal development you know those kind of things what are those impacts um and then you know there's the financial burdens and stuff I mean I guess maybe it doesn't end because you know what I was just thinking about this so if you have a felony drug conviction you cannot get the education income tax credit mm-hmm. for college so like I didn't get to write it off and get any money back when everybody else did so uh, still a little upset about that so I think that's an amazing point um, <laughs> here we are as a community right uh, just like a large community of the United States talking about how people in the criminal justice system need to be rehabilitated yet we impose barriers and take away resources from them to do things that are going to better or improve their lives yet than the community's lives. Here you are, an executive director, um, really giving back to the community and still you're ineligible for resources. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. And then, you know, would I be able to go get licensed and work somewhere with my my background? I probably would. You know, I probably would. I, you know, I have a lot of privilege um, for many reasons, but, uh, and I'm just kind of like a hustler person, but not not everybody can do that not everybody has the skills the abilities and the privilege to accomplish those goals um the interesting thing about the way our criminal justice system works is that to some degree people need like a timeout there's a lot of societal components that cause crime and stuff poverty and stuff but the reality is there's people out committing crimes for various reasons but you know once you are rehabilitated you should have the opportunity to restore your Mm -hmm. liberty Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. you shouldn't have it stripped forever like i should be able to like um quickly i say like five years quickly like get my felonies reduced like you know what i mean be restored to full citizenship but i mean that can take 15 20 years and that's that's an entire lifetime and and the system doesn't incentivize people to do that Mm -hmm. so i think it should Mm -hmm. you use the word citizenship why that word um, I mean, you're either like either a citizen or you're not. When you're a citizen, you have the ability to exercise your constitutional rights. Mm. If you're not, you know, a citizen, then and you don't. And when you get a felony, you know, you're no longer able to exercise your your constitutional rights like a normal citizen would. Mm-hmm. Can you share a little bit more about how you've been impacted personally and what your journey has looked like? Yeah, sure. You know, I grew up poor, you know, pretty poor uh, in Camas, Washington, which is a really affluent white town. And um, at like the age of like 12, I kind of realized that, you know, my father, who I thought was my father, wasn't my father, was like my stepfather. And, um, you know, my real dad was in Idaho and had me with my mom and then had like some kids with my mom's sister uh and you know so i'm from like the trailer parks of pocatello idaho but I, but i realized this stuff growing up um and i was pretty insecure about who i was and then i think i just had this pre uh, disposition to addiction i started using drugs and so i started going to jail at a very young age and you know because i was poor and i think because of the trauma i went through i really connected like hip-hop culture and um and kind of even some alternative culture like music i I talk about music because it played a critical role in shaping my ideology and my beliefs at the time um but 
I was like opposed to the system. I didn't like the system. I felt disenfranchised, you know, from the larger social, you know, um, fabric or the system that we operate in in society. And then, you know, I just like started getting um, like minor in possession charges. And that's when I started going in and out of jail. I thought jail was like cool. So, <laughs> you know, like, I hate to say that it was just like the jail, you know, jail just kind of was this authoritarian magnetic force that pulled me in and, and you know and, and kept me stuck and, and to some degree it did but to some degree like I thought it was cool to be against the system now while I was while I was in jail as a kid could I have used like a peer mentor to come in you know and like talk to me and stuff and maybe ch you know change the trajectory of my life absolutely you know I could have had some intervention but I didn't and so I just you know cycled in and out of jail uh, as a kid and then continued that through my adult criminal career just kind of never got the big charge that sent me to prison you know thank god you know I potentially could still be in prison like my father and my uncles and stuff or just in and out of jail for a long time uh, but I didn't you know most of my criminality and stuff was connected to to my drug use I heard you talk about feeling connected to a community which was the hip-hop community and feeling connected to this kind of ideology that was like against the man against the system was it acceptable for you to go to prison was it kind of like a badge of honor for you to go to jail I mean um and be in and out of that system did that feel validating for you yeah and I mean you, what you gotta understand about like some poor people is that like um poor people go through a lot of trauma is that like the stuff that's happening at your house is bad enough and it's so bad that going to jail isn't any worse. Does that make sense? That's not the worst part. Right. And then to some degree, it's almost better because you're you're going to jail and you're hanging out with these other individuals who typically have a similar experience as you. And there's like a degree of, you know, camaraderie in it. So, yeah, kind of like a badge of honor of like, you know, you're taking control of your own life and nobody's going to tell you what to do. And you know, you, you're going to, um, punish me. Well, you can't punish me any worse than my circumstances already. So, so what, you know what I mean? So it's almost like a kinship, yeah. like a community within the community and jail or prison can provide kind of this survivorship where people can be together and be survivors, but still be, like you said, taking control of their circumstances in some sort of a way, even when they're stripped of control. Well, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, there's some shared experience in that, mm -hmm. of kind of being in it together. Yeah. Have you guys been to jail before? Nope. Every, you guys got to go to jail. <laughs> That's the cool thing to do. I mean, I've been in a jail. Been I've been in a prison. Monica's been in a jail and okay. in a prison. Um, but certainly not from the lived experience perspective. And that's well, I can hook you up totally with a week of jail if you want <laughs> to increase your lived experience. I don't know if I want lived that experience. kind of connection, <laughs> If you want to increase your lived experience competency, <laughs> we'll hook you I'll, up. I'll trust your story as you share it with us, okay? What are some unique barriers that you see for young people coming in and out of the system? Well, you know, one thing about, you know, your teenage to maybe 25 you know, it's 13 to 25, is that people are really f kind of forming their identity mm. through that time. Um, and so when, like, I work with young guys, 
they want to be like just it, it depends i work with lots of different people i work at 4d we don't bill insurance and stuff so anybody can come in and, and get support which is really cool so, and it gives me this opportunity to really um so the dudes that i'm thinking that come in and out of jail are, are the poor kids uh and they're just like really wanting to belong to something mm-hmm. you know they want to belong to something so bad they want to be important so bad and they want to have like a role and a title uh something they want to stand for something they want to be recognized for standing for something so it can take kind of a, a minute for them to break that thinking um but you know if if you're able to help them you know clasp onto like something positive they will mm-hmm. uh, and so that's one of the biggest barriers that i see i mean there's just the social determinants of health barriers that everybody has coming out of jail you got to have somewhere to live mm-hmm. got to eat you know what i mean um you got to start with the basics which yeah, a lot of people yeah. don't have right you know what i mean and now people are like social determinants of health and all this stuff and it's like poor people know about that <laughs> you know already like you got to get around and uh, eat and have somewhere to just lay your head um but you know i think they face um kind of a a community to connect with that's you know doing positive things and then the ability to to make some mistakes after they get out Mm -hmm. so that's one thing is that people get out and they can make some mistakes yeah you know and i'm not talking about like the sociopathic person i mean you know i'm talking about mostly people with drug issues i mean you know 70 80 percent of people incarcerated have drug issues you know finding a a place to belong a place to go a place to hang out long enough uh so they can have some sort of ideological shift right i mean that's a lot to ask somebody is to completely shift the way you think about things Mm -hmm. if you just ask like regular people in society like you need to go to prison and be a gangbanger and you need to do it right now like tomorrow Tomorrow you need to be like this hardcore gangbanger. People wouldn't be able to do it. It mm-hmm. takes time. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes time to change. Uh, so that's a, a big barrier I see is people having the opportunity and the space to change and then um, connecting with other people that can help them change. Leveraging, um, you know, experience, like that transformation that's happened and helping other people, tr- you know, transform. Um, men, you know... I, it, men i'm like a single dad a co-parent whatever um men do not get the same kind of support as fathers that women do as mothers and and men really face a lot of barriers fathers face a lot of barriers um when they're trying to be with their kids and see their kids it's really rough on us Uh, it's really rough on the guys i see who have kids and they get out and they want to be um nurturers and they want to be involved in decision making and they want to you know caretake and stuff like that but I mean I get to some degree that from like a patriarchal perspective but as we shift away from that you know how do you give men the opportunity to leave it behind and and be something different I don't know if that makes sense to you guys uh, but it's something I've really been struggling with you know it's like okay well I want to be different you know I want to be a different type of man but when I go to try to assume a different role, it's it's not allowed by all, all these different players, if that makes sense. And I see guys just, like, struggle with that. It really upsets them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes them just be like, you know, screw it. Why, why I'm doing all this, trying to change. I want to be with my kids. It's a big motivation for a lot of guys. 
uh, but then they're just not given the opportunity to. Mm-hmm. So the systems that they're interacting with don't have the same kinds of supports and resources in place, in right, and place people. like women do. Yeah, and p- just people, everyday people. <laughs> they just don't recognize, you know, they don't recognize the value men bring as a nurturer and a caretaker um, in, a lot of, in a lot of ways, but, mm. you know, most often to children that I see. Why are young people so important to our communities well i mean young people are the future you know (laughs) so that's why they're important but i think if you're going to make a better society you have to incorporate the ideals of young people and because what i've noticed in just myself um any of the other people is like uh you know you're young you have these aspirations um, these ideals of what a, a future can be and then as you get older, you just get more immersed in the system mm-hmm. as it stands, right? And so you get, like, more dependent on it as you have a, you know, you, you have a job and you have a kids and you have a, you know, a home. And it's like, I don't know if I want to go, like, you know, occupy Portland and stuff, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and go do kind of that, you know, those, those things that shift the system to make it better, mm. you know, um, you know, I think our system can be made better. You know, that's what I, that's what I see why young people are so important. At like at 4D, for example, it's like, how do I? I'm 34 now. You know, I got I guess over 27. For a long time, I was kind of the. You know, I organized all the events and the services and stuff at 4D, um, and I was really good at it, and people came. But 20 year olds now are different than mm. me. They just are. <laughs> they just are, and it's interesting supervising them. But like, in what ways? They just are different. Not, they just are different. They like to do different stuff. They listen to different music. They're just different. And connecting is different. <laughs> they just, yeah. And how do I um, like support, support or, cultivate, yeah. energize, uh, energize them and give them a platform to develop and to exercise their thoughts about stuff? You know, and so it's like, okay. Even if it doesn't align with your own? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's some stuff where it's like, you can't do that, you know? <laughs> but Sure. Um, but how do you give them a platform to make things better as they see it, mm-hmm. you know, and not just get, you know, sucked into the current system? Young people are the future. But we have to give them the latitude to, to make it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you wish you would have had as a young person? Gee, I, I mean, like, parents, like, <laughs> you know, that weren't all messed up, you know. But looking back now... Um, there, there were people. There were good. There were good people. I just, I wish I would have had the ability to recognize my own self worth and, um, you know, and, um, and and efficacy. I wish I would realize that I had efficacy and power, and that you know I could do like good things, and there was like spiritually based things um, that I could do that that filled my soul, uh, versus just being upset that I didn't have the material stuff that I saw other people have. I mean, that was a big thing for me. It's like I was poor. It's a culture of poverty to have things, material things. That you want. Yeah, which makes sense. When did you realize that you had worth and that you you had something to give back? It was when I went to, so I went to Portland Community College straight out of jail. And so, I mean, that's a good question. Like, what, what does it take to give somebody the opportunity to change? So I believe that people need to be given as many opportunities uh, as they need to change you know I went to treatment for like the fourth time with a nudge from the judge from jail to treatment 
was required by this treatment center to go get my GED. A perk of getting my GED was I got 12 credits to Portland Community College. When I got there, there was another incentive. Right, so this is like compliance and, and incentives. Um, got there, there was an incentive to participate in this weekly group for people in recovery. It was embedded in the Women's Resource Center. While I was in there, a woman suggested that I start a club for people in recovery, and I did. Got exposed to student government. I ran this club for a long time, uh, and we just wanted to destigmatize addiction through service work in the community. Simultaneously, I was doing this introspective work on myself. You know, I was telling my story, and I was, you know, like helping people that way. And that, and through that process, somewhere I started to believe that I could accomplish anything that I wanted. Uh, and there was a lot of people supporting me, you know, around that. You know, my first mentor, Kendi Essery. <laughs> Um, runs the student life program at Portland Community College Cascade Campus and she just like really supported and believed in me um, and like it was a big deal it was a big deal for them to like give me the keys to the school and I could go in and like use the office when I wanted you know because nobody would do that really <laughs> before and then in you know in the recovery community people you know and they supported me no matter what and for no other reason than they just wanted to help me achieve what they had achieved so there's actually a few things that happened. So I started doing this introspective work where I was like, I'm not really that bad. And then I was like, Narcotics Anonymous, you know, presented addiction as a disease, which was really interesting to me. I didn't realize that. And then I was taking these sociology classes and I was doing this like student government work and all that like shifted the way I thought about, mm -hmm. about everything. So all of these things that I thought were wrong with me, which weren't wrong with me, you know, they're just symptoms of, life, whatever, society, um, I got to externalize all of that through advocacy, kind of like mm -hmm. picking society apart. You get to see it how it, for what it is, and then you get to learn that you have influence on it. You know, and now it's like I'm doing the same stuff, but I'm doing it at the statewide level with like Oregon Recovers, which is a statewide mm -hmm. advocacy organization, and I'm learning even more about how it works. But, you know, it's through all of that that, that changed who I was and how I saw the world and my role in it and my belief that I could change it I mean you know I had just I just graduated college with a bachelor's degree last year congratulations yeah that's awesome and you know I'm 34 and you know I've taken a nonprofit from like a like a hundred thousand dollar budget to like 1.4 million you know in, in a few years and it's like it wasn't that long ago I was like homeless shooting heroin you know and so is that because I have this unique skill set you know partially you know, I'm not gonna lie like partially I have a skill set but I think it's I had the opportunity to cultivate and develop those skills into something and then I have the you know support network around me that helps me you know so how do we create those kind of experiences for people for all people you know with different needs you know like what does like a trans person need to have that experience stuff like that sounds like in the beginning you were following through with some steps of going to treatment of getting your GED um, but weren't quite not in the beginning you weren't uh, really internalizing that um, you were worth that or that you had value you were just following through because there were some incentives along the way or some other people that thought it was a good idea well and I was in I was inspired you know I was inspired to do it and you know, my first moment of clarity or inspiration was like sitting 
in the treatment center, like out in the front desk area, looking in at people who were like eating in the treatment center. These are clients who are more healthy than me. And then looking at myself and just being like, you know, <laughs> like, um, like maybe I could just do that. Like maybe that's just the next step, you know? And then, you know, ever, you know, since then it's just been like little inspiration by little inspiration because when I got out of jail and I went to PCC, I couldn't get employed anywhere that was going to make any money. And so I was just like, you know what? Um, I'm doing this like student government stuff. I'm just going to take out a bunch of loans, live in an Oxford house, ride a bike around, and volunteer like a bunch of hours. And then I got involved in 4D, started volunteering on the board, and volunteered a lot before we actually got any money, you know, and just built up a skill set that way and a, and a resume that way, you know. So you talked earlier about privilege and your acknowledgement of your privilege as a white man. You also talked about providing people with opportunities to mess up or to make mistakes throughout their process of change. When you think about privilege and making mistakes, what have you seen either in your your lived experience or in your work with the agency of people of color trying to make changes, making mistakes, still motivated for change, but having significant consequences that interrupt their ability to make changes? So this dude that I, that I mentored and... Um and he just experienced some stuff with getting into education that I didn't experience and some barriers. And, I, you know, I believe that it, it is because he's black. But then I also I also see, like, in Multnomah County, for example, I do see, like, um, some sort of an investment, you know, into culturally specific supports and stuff. So, I, I mean, I feel like, seen some sort of a change happening to some degree like small uh which is which is good but i know that i just see black people and stuff just not get treated the same in women any sort of racial issues um can be very nuanced uh but i you know i've seen like my white privilege my male privilege the fact that like I'm athletic and I have blue eyes you know I've seen all of that stuff kind of play out in my favor in various circumstances to where other people who are more intelligent than me uh, are not given the same platform uh, for ideas uh, for example for elevation for money um, opportunity and stuff I've seen it play out yeah how do you incorporate some of that learning into how you choose to run 4d so when I was in Portland Community College, um, the movement that's happening right now, kind of like the civil rights movement that's happening right now, was starting to get take main stage, I think, in politics. And, and that might be wrong. You know, it's like 2013. Uh, but, you know, because I wasn't really political before. But anyways, I, to me, it was starting to take to take shape. And so, you know, systems are connected to the larger political environment and Portland Community College was doing a lot of DEI work, diversity, equity, inclusion work. And so I learned a lot about like critical race theory and stuff, you know, and um and anyway, so you know what I figured out is that like you like just like if you want people to show up, you have to hire people from those communities. I run a peer service program. You know, everybody's a peer. We mentor other people. Does every black person want to work with another black person? No, no. And you know, I've gotten, <laughs> I've gotten it 
wrong so many times that I've just learned to ask people what they need. Uh, but, but anyways, once um, we got more funding and we could hire people from their communities, those communities start to, to show up. You know, and I think for me what I've learned is that as like a white person, it's, you know, it's not like my fault. It's stuff's the way it is uh, to some degree. Um, but, you know, I'm in a, like a position of power and influence right now. Not every white person is, but I am. I'm in a position of power and influence um, to allocate resources and to help people. And so, you know, I do that in a way that I make sure, you know, I'm advocating for all people and what they need based on the history of America to some degree. Does that mean I think like certain people should just be like given and everything, you know? No, I don't, I don't think that. Um, but I think that certain people should be given what they need to be successful and that money should be allocated in a way that gives everybody the same opportunity because everyone doesn't have the same opportunity right now. Uh, and so, you know, I carry kind of like this social justice, critical race theory type of, you know, lens, restorative justice stuff uh, in, in, in my work at 4D. You know, at 4D, I got people come in post-incarceration dudes. They're super homophobic and sexist, you know, and stuff. And it's just, it's not, you know, 100% their fault. They're just living in a system that that's normative, you know. But they're coming out, and then they're at 4D. And then we have the Lava Lamp Ladies meeting there, and they're like a bunch of feminists and stuff. And, you know, how do those two people coexist at the same time? And it's that principle, right, where it's like, I'll put this stuff to the side. Right, there's you know, a common ground. Right, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so in that way, you know, it, it's kind of cool uh, that way. And you know what? Like, younger people, they don't care as much about that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's what I found. They just, like, I'm like, okay, everybody, like, this person's um, trans, and this is they, that, and you be nice to them, or I'll kick you out of 4D. And they're like, yeah, like. They're like, we already got yeah, this. Dude. We got it. <laughs> yeah. We yeah. could told you that. They're like, yeah, cool. You know, I mean, I, you know, not everybody's like that, but younger people seem to be more with it. Uh-huh. So more flexibility around perspective and <laughs> accepting identity. Yeah. Well, everybody comes. Yeah. Everyone who wants to recover should have the opportunity to. Sure. You know, and other people just have a harder time for various reasons and they should be given what they need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What continues to inspire you working working where you are, doing the kind of work you do? Well, now that I'm, you know, involved uh, in politics, nothing inspires me anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you got the inspiration and you have lost the inspiration. I've lost it. No, uh, <laughs> what inspires me now? It's people, you know, people inspire me. A lot of time it's like the newer person who's in recovery who's like figured out that you can change and change is possible and they're experiencing the you know revolutionary effect of, of recovery that it has on people and and they're all jazzed up i like that and i can see like the fruits of some of my labor like you know i started a leadership development program at 4d through civic engagement kind of trying to replicate what i experienced so it keeps me closer to the people and then there's just like you know there's like bad things that happen you know, there's bad things that happen. I worked with this woman that I met um, for like a year. 
like eight months before her daughter or her niece got out of prison i was working with her trying to figure it all out set up the pieces find out where she was going to treatment where she was going to live you know and she got out and she did really good and then she like went home to visit where her kids are and she would eat the first night she was there and died and i haven't recently so that was a really big you know let down um and then sometimes it's just like watching people with addiction just, just you know what i mean like fall over and over again and it just like sometimes it's just like what is going on you know like why is it not working i've tried everything to help them but then there's all the people who are getting in you know and and changing my kids of course you know i have a a nine-year-old so i have two daughters i have a nine-year-old who's severely autistic and she's really the reason i got clean like the real deep motivation for me to get clean because i did not want to be like my father but like i got clean for her and then a few years in my recovery, we had to send her to a school for kids with autism. So she goes to a school in Wichita, Kansas, and the school district pays for it. She inspires me. And then my youngest daughter, and she's um, the sweetest, sweetest thing you could meet. I mean, she really is a special kid. And so she inspires me to be better, better than I am every day. If we have listeners who are hearing your story and kind of how you came to be and where you are in life what do you want them to know that that maybe are misconceptions or just things that you're constantly having to speak to in the community like for people that maybe aren't in the work and haven't experienced that themselves well you know one of the things is like people think that so people think that addiction is solely a mental health disorder or a symptom of a mental health disorder i've never been diagnosed with a mental health disorder you know i did not need to go see a mental health therapist or a psychiatrist and get just like prescribed antipsychotics uh, mood stabilizers and everything um not saying that there people aren't like that but I, like i hate that general statement uh that it's like one and the same yeah all the time i think it's an overgeneralization okay. and, and we set people up for failure because we start pe- treating people who have addiction and criminality like they're mentally ill or you know what i mean like mm-hmm. and, and that's not the right treatment drug addiction is a chronic health disease it is but the things that we have to realize um, as we swing away from the, the criminal justice system is that other stuff, you know, other like like um, cardiac conditions or diabetes, there isn't this associated criminality that happens with it, this behavioral thing. Um, and so as we move away from the Department of Criminal Justice as one of the instruments to intervene on people, one of the interventions, we have to develop a new paradigm you know in a new system that engages people and motivates them to change you know and i think for me it was you know finding that love and compassion and stuff that there is in the recovery community you know i don't know that i've felt that same kind of stuff in like a doctor's office for say but you know but uh you know the culture the culture of it and so that you know people can and do change um when they're given the opportunities and, and it takes time you know, but it does happen. Do you think there are existing systems that can better intervene than the criminal justice system on addiction? Just like, just let me hire like 20 people. So let me hire like 20 people and then have the subsequent healthcare um, treatment services and housing services available. Mm -hmm. Let me hire like 20, 30 peers 
just to go out and like engage, engage people, people yeah. just straight like up reach. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then provide people medication assisted treatment. I think that's really great. Um, you know, and, and just engage them and get them into, into treatment. I mean, one of the thing that's really, that we really have to grapple with is the fact that, okay, 25% of people in Oregon have Medicaid. Medicaid's really great in a lot of ways. 75% of people don't have Medicaid and they're on private insurance and it's extremely expensive for them. Um, and then there just isn't the equivalent treatment options for people. Like, dude, I spend, like, a lot of time. I probably have, like, 20 or 30 conversations going on right now on my Facebook Messenger with various families and people all over the state of Oregon. Some nationally, like, some people are, are contacting me. I don't know how they get my number. They're desperate. And they don't know how to navigate the private health care system for treatment. And there's people who are spending all of their money. They're liquidating all of their money trying to figure out a place for their kid to go to treatment because there's no options you know there's no options there and so I think what that sets us up for um, is the opportunity to kind of put political differences aside and and work together on one issue right that affects everybody regardless of who you are you know opioids came in and they really started affecting privileged white people and then we had the opioid discussion now they're all you know there's this focal point on addiction and there's really an opportunity for you know recovery organizers to come in and pass some legislation that makes sense um under the veil of all of that like changing our idea that addiction is an individual problem to addiction is a community problem um because we have like you were saying the social determinants of health we know who is targeted we already know that um it's been established and it's not just one person's problem it's this huge community nationwide issue and if we do not start taking ownership over the community our communities then we're going to continue to just be in this space where we're treating one person as one person rather than a symptom of this community problem you know that's a really good yeah that's a really good way to put it so you know 4d's mission and vision 4d's vision now after i've experienced what nonprofit. Welcome. Hustling works like for the last <laughs> four, four years, um, you know, in a capitalist system uh, with limited resources, you know. So ad- addiction is a, a chronic health disease, uh, you know, of the brain, for example, that expresses itself in all of these. You know, I hate to say antisocial, but, you know, non-normal behaviors. And it's complicated and it's hard for people to, to change. So you have to have a coordinated effort from across systems and communities and individuals. So what we need to create is, you know, a recovery oriented system of care. And I didn't coin that term. William White did, as far as I know. Uh, I'll shout out to William White. But it's just like a coordinated effort between systems, communities, and individuals to increase recovery rates in local communities. And so that's, you know, that's my vision is a, a society where those things happen. Systems, communities, individuals all work together. And, you know, the way that 4D is trying to do that for young people is um, by providing a variety of recovery support services in partnership with mm-hmm. systems, communities, mm-hmm. and individuals. Uh, because what I what I see is that there's this like weird thing called poverty pimping that I notice people get in their little nonprofit hustle and then it's all about them and, and their mission and their marketing and their propaganda and the money and everybody's competing and everybody wants to be cooler than each other and all this other shit. 
And it's just like not not what it, it's supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. But it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. But it's a real thing. And so how how do we as young people at 4D, which I'm getting older, but you know, how do we as young people say, "Hey, look, no, we're going to all work together. We're going to promote each other's resources and the utilization of each other's resources. We're going to try to build up you know, new um or maybe older uh minority programs, stuff like that, you know." Um, and work with everyone that we can to try to accomplish one goal versus just being stratified in our little thing. Gotta get my little grant and my contract, and just, you know what I mean, and compete mm-hmm. with everybody. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's more of a collective experience. Or, yeah, coordinated effort. This is not, that is not what is happening right now. <laughs> I <laughs> promise <Yep>. you. <laughs> <laughs> I think some people are trying. No, I, I, think, I do. Yeah. I think some people are trying. I also think it's this interesting place that nonprofits get into where they're the specializer it's this is our population this is what we do rather than thinking about this is huge spectrum of people and everybody like you said needs something totally different and I don't know what you need I don't know tell right. you tell me what you need and I'm gonna try to hook it up right no yeah, yeah. exactly you know and I you know I tell people what they need sometimes <laughs> um, when I have rapport with them you know because <laughs> I, I try to challenge people to be better than they are you mm-hmm. know because the last thing that we want to do is, is build a system for people who have substance use disorders who are coming out of prison that puts a ceiling on them mm-hmm. which i mean we can do that to some degree if we're like okay mm-hmm. we're just going to give you food and and drugs and a place to live and that's all you're capable of doing is what we give you do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's that, I mean, there's that belief out there. I meet mm-hmm. people who, like, think like that. It's like, they'll never be anything more. than we have to just give them this stuff because that's all they're going to accomplish. And it's like, no. So, you know, how do we provide the things that people need, but then inspire them, motivate them, and cultivate them to be the best versions of themselves and help others, whatever, you know, stuff like that. How do we build that system to where they get a job, start giving, you know, per- participating in the economy and stuff because that's important. <laughs> You know, especially to sell some of these ideas to conservatives, but you know, whatever. Yeah, part of it is like, what do you need today to move forward? But then, how do I also help you see a vision for, for wanting something more? Right. Right. Yeah. It's not just like housing and food and clothing. Like, yes, you need those things, and what el- what else is possible for you? Right. How do we cultivate efficacy in people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's like at 4D. Those are the things that I really want to focus on over this next year, is getting our our programs and our services. So it's like. We're like the drug dealers of recovery. So, you know, you come to us and we got all the options of everything you could ever need. You know what I mean? Yeah. We know every kind of pathway, you know, whatever your vice is, we can help you. You know what I mean? That's how I explain it to my staff (laughs) or my coworkers. (laughs) And then we just help, you know, create efficacy in people by asking them what they want, um, want to accomplish, whatever it is. I don't care. I think it's really um, important to think about what you said uh, the drug dealers of what recovery, recovery. <laughs> <laughs> okay. but I always you know I, I would say to people who were coming out of prison or who were active in their um, gang affiliation these skill sets are transferable oh they are dude Th- this is the most amazing skill set you are like super social you can get anybody to, to do, do pretty much anything and you can sell anybody anything right I already know and so I think it's it's really cool that you're talking about having a skill set that's just changed a little bit. You don't have to change who you are 
necessarily as an entire person because you already have the stuff within you to make the change totally you're you know you're already amazing we just gotta channel it in a different way yeah you just like have this degree of dissonance based on what society's expectations are of you you know what i mean so yeah so i mean we have like soldiers at 4d I know, yeah, I'm aware. (laughs) You know, and that's like, because I got this one program director who was like a little gangbanger dude from the numbers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we went to treatment together. And anyway, you know, and now he's there. And so he really fits a certain type of of dude. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Out of jail, loves gang, you know what I mean? All that kind of stuff. They really look up to him. And then he takes their current ideology you know because a lot of it's based off these these principles and these core beliefs that are a part of the criminal culture transfers them over slowly to recovery Mm. and they become like soldiers for recovery Mm -hmm. yeah you know what i mean yeah (laughs) Yeah, so it's cool it's cool to watch him do that so when i first started out in the field um my supervisor said to me this is not a popular group she said this is a group of people that society does not find appealing, does not want to funnel money into, um, and doesn't really care about. These are the scary people. Yeah, I know. I've been trying to fundraise for them. Yeah. <laughs> it's not easy. And at first I didn't necessarily understand what she was saying because yeah. here I am. I love this population, right? These are my people. Um but over time, it, it is hard to get community buy-in, and it is hard to explain to people why this population is so important. What would you say to a listener who doesn't think this is an important part of our community? How would you tell them that we need to invest in, in people with substance use disorders, mental health, poverty, um, criminal justice, yeah, crime, gangs? Yeah, I mean, it would depend on the, the person I was talking to. I mean, I think there's a lot of upsides to help to helping this population. The, you know, first is like the reduction in crime. <laughs> you know, like you're reducing crime. Um, you reduce the financial burdens on taxpayers. You increase the overall, you know, economic uh, output of our society. You unify families. Those are kind of the quantitative type of things, you know. I mean, the qualitative stuff is like you give people an opportunity to realize the best versions of themselves. You know, a lot of communities are kind of, you know, they've been created in the way they've been created. Circumstances have been created through the colonization and exploitation of, of people of color in our, in our society. And that's just a fact that is undisputable. Um... And so we have this opportunity to swing back the other way and say, okay, we're going to go invest in these communities, right, and kind of help liberate them uh, from their bondage of, of American culture, Amer- the history of American culture. Do you have anything you would want to say or that you would like for our listeners to hear from you? There's a lot of social workers, um, allied health professionals, healthcare professionals who need more education around addiction. That's what I would say you know, uh, who don't understand it and need a lot more education. And healthcare professionals don't get any any training or education. There's no foundational education requirements to work in any, you know, behavioral health or healthcare field besides addiction that relates to addiction. And I would argue that it's probably the greatest healthcare issue that we face. Um, 
So I would say you guys got to go educate yourselves on what addiction is. And then subsequently, you really have to go ahead learn about recovery. Diagnose somebody about how you're going to help them recover. Because unlike diabetes, it, it takes, it can take, uh, it takes, I don't want to speak for everybody, but it can take more than just, um, you know, some sort of clinical treatment. Mm-hmm. It can take a relational kind of ongoing support modality, you know? Yeah. So get educated is what I would say. <laughs> so Tony said it, get educated. Get educated, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for um, coming all the way over here after a long day of work. We really appreciate it.